What I didn't understand was how addictive heroin was. So when people tried to warn me and say, Lisa, you're now dabbling with something that could kill you, my answer was, not me. There's never going to be anything that I'm ever going to experience that I can't control. If it starts to take control of me, I will stop. And that was, for me, the big danger, is that I never felt out of control until I was out of control and I knew I was going to die. This month, the Hurt to Healing podcast is marking both Stress Awareness Month and Women's Health Month. Women's Health Month is an awareness event that focuses on the health concerns that women, non-binary and transgender people experience daily, while Stress Awareness Month is a wonderful way of highlighting the negative impact that stress has on our mental health. Education and empathy are vital for transforming female mental health and providing people with the support that they deserve. That's why this month, I will be speaking to phenomenal women about a host of topics ranging from addiction, burnout, to prenatal depression, so that women can feel less alone and misunderstood and can be inspired by others who have finally found light in the darkness. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. On today's episode, I'm joined by Lisa Breyer, a film and documentary producer who is best known for producing the epic box office success, The Last King of Scotland, which won an Oscar and many BAFTA awards. Considering her phenomenal success, you might wonder why Lisa is here today. But as you will soon discover, she battled with an addiction to drugs, including heroin, for eight years. After a friend recommended that she attended Narcotics Anonymous, she realized she could break the cycle of drug abuse and she eventually managed to overcome her addiction. Today, Lisa is still sober and spends a lot of her time helping other addicts. I'm so in awe of her recovery and I'm sure her story will inspire so many others. Well, I'd love to start by asking you about your low self-esteem growing up, as well as a bit about your family, because you've spoken a bit about these being quite fundamental in your development of your addictive behaviours. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up from the outside, a normal family, middle class family in London, a couple of younger sisters, a mother and a father. But it was a family that was really, it was full of high achievement My father had come out of South Africa from a very poor family in South Africa. And the only way to get out in those days was scholarships. And he got a Rhodes Scholar to Oxford and then another one to Harvard, where he met my wonderful, mad American mother. And they ended up settling in London, both very, very high achievers. My mother always worked right through her life, right through her pregnancies, all the way through when we were growing up, and my father the same. So I think my first feeling really was not being good enough. My father was also obsessed with physical perfection. He'd had a mother in South Africa who had a stroke 
and the boys at the local market used to throw rotten fruit at her because of her physical appearance. So he grew up thinking that physical appearance and achievement were the two things that were going to get you on in life. That was very difficult for, I was the eldest of three sisters, and just the first feeling I ever felt was a feeling of not being good enough, not being attractive enough, not being thin enough, and not being clever enough. I think that's such a good point, is that feeling of not being enough, not feeling good enough, not feeling like you fitted in, feeling that judgment of one's parents. And I think so often that lays the foundations for issues going forward, and especially with eating disorders, body image stuff, lack of self-esteem, which can then often morph into addictive behaviors. So what did that then manifest itself into when you became, I guess you were slightly trying to numb those feelings of inadequacy and lack of self-esteem? A hundred percent. And that was always what I was trying to do, whether it was with drugs, alcohol, food, whatever it was, it was always trying to numb those feelings, those feelings of just dreadful, dreadful low self-esteem. Probably when I hit puberty, first started to realize that I could numb those feelings with food and that if I ate more food, especially sugar, I could just numb those terrible feelings that I was having. And I remember even though my father was a dentist, he loved chocolate. And sweets was always a prize for whether it was doing the best at, at school or, you know, the best runner or whatever it was. And there was always a lot of sweets around. And sweets for me equaled a prize. So positivity. And I remember using food, especially sugar, chocolate, to really, really try and numb those feelings. The problem was I put on weight and then I started to hate the way I looked. And that for me was a real problem because I just got bigger and bigger. And I could see, especially again from my father's point of view, that this was not acceptable, that one had to have that feminine physical form. And that's really when I started with drugs. The first drug that I took was a diet pill. I'd failed all my exams. I was dyslexic. It was never really in those days. It wasn't really a thing. And that caused a lot of problems at home. And I ended up leaving school when I was about 16. And my parents sent me to a secretarial college to try and learn to type, which was also a complete disaster. And that's where I, I first started these awful diet pills. I don't suggest anyone ever takes them because they make you so speedy. You then have to, or I certainly then had to sort of hunt around, which to start was in my mother's medicine cabinet. I'd have to hunt around for anything that would bring me down from that very jittery feeling that one got when taking diet pills. And what was that that brought you, I mean, downers or sedatives? What what was it that you found that you I took? started with Valium. My mother always had Valium in her medicine cabinet. In those days, you know, this was 50 years ago, 
Valium was the big drug. And I quickly learned that if I took my diet pills, then that would help me with my appetite as they were an appetite suppressant. And then when I was all jittery, usually I'd have coffee too, which made things worse. I could then take a Valium and that would sort of calm me down. And then I learned that sleeping pills would then also help me have what I thought was a good night's sleep. And again, it would mean at night, I wouldn't have to lie in bed feeling all those feelings of not succeeding, not being good enough at school, not being in a body that I thought would attract boys. And then, of course, I'll, I mean, I'll never forget the first boy that, I mean, I wouldn't have even called him my boyfriend, but certainly the first where we had sexual activities. Oh, it was just awful. It was so awful. And I was just so vulnerable and so worried about how I looked and what I didn't know. And I remember those feelings afterwards, just hating myself and being so self-critical. And of course, for me, drugs were perfect because they took away all those feelings. But again, if one is a, an addict, and I'm definitely an addict, a drug addict, diet pills and the odd sleeping pill and Valium is never going to be enough. And that's the danger, is that it can lead on to much more addictive, much more dangerous drugs, which is exactly what happened to me. So will you talk to us about the escalation and how quickly that happened and what it looked like for you? I think the escalation came sort of when I was about 16, 17, 18, and I had failed at this sort of secretarial course. And I ended up working as the cashier at a hamburger restaurant. In those days, it was called Great American Disaster. And it was the first cool rock and roll, loud music hamburger joint in London. And it was in Beecham Place in Knightsbridge. And I remember it incredibly well. And all the waiters were sort of very cool. And quite a few of them were American. And they were into taking Coke and heroin. And rather than sort of feeling scared, and, you know, these are A-class drugs that people die from. And, you know, my parents had always warned me off drugs. I just thought, if they're taking it, I'm going to take them. This is going to be really, really cool. You know, you put that together with the music and a late night burger joint. And I was sort of in heaven. I'll never forget my first night, the first night that I took heroin. I threw up and threw up and threw up everywhere. And instead of like most normal people would think, what is so cool about this drug? You know, I'm sitting here in a pool of vomit. I'm not getting the feeling that everyone else is getting. I'm going to leave this drug alone. I just thought, hold on a second. Why am I not getting the feeling that everyone else is getting? And I'm going to continue trying it, vomit or no vomit, until I get that feeling. And that's what I did. And heroin, very much like Valium, numbs you. And that, at that time in my life, was what I was looking for. I was looking for something that would stop me feeling and take away all those feelings of not fitting in and not being good enough. And that's what heroin did. 
you know, it left me in a corner. Didn't matter if I was in a room full of friends or if I was by myself. And you would gently, I would just gently sort of fall asleep or nod out, as it was called, and into sort of this haze of not having to feel. And I loved that feeling. It just took away everything. But of course, what I didn't understand was how addictive heroin was. And also, I've always had the personality of there's never going to be anything that I'm ever going to experience that I can't control. So when people tried to warn me and say, Lisa, you know, you're really, you're, you're now dabbling with something that could kill you. My answer was not me. I'm a go-getter. I'm someone who can go out and get a job. I'm someone who can go out and get a boyfriend. I can control my whole family background by lying to my parents or moving out of home when I was 18 uh, into this little sort of basement flat with my boyfriend. So I'm going to be the same with drugs and I'm going to be the same with heroin. If it starts to take control of me, I will stop. And that was, for me, the big danger is that I never felt out of control until I was out of control. And that's when I started overdosing and I knew that I was going to die. But that wasn't until I was 25. So I had to go through an awful lot of really horrible experiences before I hit that point. And I think that's the experience of so many addicts. And thank you so much for sharing that because it is messy. And I think there is that tendency to think we are invincible, whatever it is. And however, we are abusing our bodies in in whatever means, whether it's through drugs, alcohol, exercise, too much food, too little food. It's this feeling that, yeah, but I know better. And I found this way of numbing my feelings and it's working for me. So you guys can all just F off. And until you really have that disaster that is a sort of massive intervention and a massive shock and really shakes your world so that you are literally forced to stop. Often it doesn't. And I was having this conversation yesterday and it was, we were talking about girls with eating disorders. And I think often it's very, very hard to explain to a 14 or 15 year old that actually you're kind of in for the long haul, unfortunately. And often it will take several years for you to have to go through the messiness and the real lows and to think that you've reached a rock bottom, but for not actually to be your rock bottom. And there might be several rock bottoms. So I think that's a very, very good point until you're really forced to stop in your tracks. It's often not enough. And anything that anyone says or does is just slightly wasted. I think so. I certainly, for me, you know, until I hit my rock bottom, I wasn't able to throw the tile in and get into recovery. And for me, that rock bottom was when I wasn't able to hold down a boyfriend. I wasn't able to hold down a job. My family didn't really want to see me. My friends didn't really want to see me. I'd got to the place where I tried all these different things work-wise. And even the work that I enjoyed, because of my addiction, I just couldn't. I remember getting into the film industry. I was working as a runner and assistant on film sets. And for the first time, I was probably 20, 21. I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about it. 
But I couldn't keep the drugs to that place where I could control them. And when I, I remember we were filming outside of England and I was okay-ish, but we got back to London and I went straight back to the dealer and my drug use just got worse and worse and worse. And my boss at the time wanted to take me onto this big film in Africa, Greystoke. And I was desperate to go. And he said, Lisa, you've obviously got a major drug problem and I can't take you until you sort yourself out. And that was the, the beginning for me of the end. And it probably took another year before I hit that real rock bottom. And by then I'd started injecting heroin. I started to do all the things that I said I would never do. And I'd got to this place where I think I was nearly 25 and I couldn't see past 25. I thought I'd started to overdose. I'd started to lie and steal and, and cheat in ways that I just loathed myself. I think I woke up one morning and I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I'd bumped into a friend of mine who had just come out of a treatment center and was going to Narcotics Anonymous. And I'd known him for years. And he said, Lisa, come with me. Let me take you to a meeting. And I thought, I've got nothing to lose. I'm dying. I have no life. I'll give it a go. And I went to this meeting and it was in the basement just off the King's Road. And this guy was doing the share, who's still around. And I just could identify with everything, apart from the fact that he was in recovery. He'd put the drugs down and the drink down. And I just thought, that's what I have to do. And that terrified me because I looked around the room. There were probably about 10 recovering drug addicts sitting in this room. And I thought, I'm going to be the only one who's not going to get better. Because I was so used to failing at everything that I'd done, I convinced myself that I wasn't going to get better. And luckily, and again, I was so lucky, a treatment center had opened up in Western Supermere, and it was the first treatment center in this country to take drug addicts. They'd had a little bit of success. It was a 12-step program. And I thought, if I can get myself there, I might live. The only problem was I needed the money. And I remember, and I'll never forget this, going to see my, my father. I went home. He was sitting in his office working. It was in the evening. I'd spoken to my mother and my sisters beforehand who had burst into floods of tears when I said, you know, I'd been a heroin addict for seven years and I was dying and I needed help. And when I told my father, he was so angry mainly, as I realized later, and obviously we talked about, because he had no understanding of addiction. And he was convinced that I was going to die. And because he didn't have any information at his fingertips, and he rang all his medical friends and all his doctor friends, and they all said, Lionel, I'm sorry, but there is no recovery for heroin addicts. I don't know what to tell you. 
perhaps the best thing is to listen to what your daughter is saying. And if she feels there's a treatment center in this country that can help her, then I think you should let her go there and pay whatever it costs for her to go there. And thank God, again, he listened. And a month later, I was sitting at this treatment center in Western Supermere that saved my life. And before that point, you had had no therapy, no one-on-one individual help. No, nothing. In those days, there wasn't anything like that. And that's, again, you know, another huge piece of luck was that this treatment center had just opened. I think it'd been going for about a year. It was based on the 12-step model out of Minnesota in America, and it was based on therapy. So at this treatment center, there were therapists, there were meetings. I walked in those doors. Uh, In fact, Vicky, my oldest friend who I'd known since I was five, we talked about last night how she took me on the train from Paddington down to Western Supermere. I asked her to, and I had this huge bag of heroin that I was taking copious amounts of because I was just desperate not to feel when I got there. And she said, you know, she literally tried to bang the door down of the tiny little toilet on these trains because she was so worried that I wasn't going to survive the train journey. But I did, and I got to Broadway Lodge, and that was terrifying because once I detoxed, which took about a week, I was suddenly faced with all my feelings and all those feelings that I had used drugs so many years not to feel of inadequacy and low self-worth and critical eye and just loathing, loathing, loathing. And here I was having to feel all those feelings. Luckily, there was a huge, great big biscuit tin in the common room, (laughs) which I delved into. But even with that, that didn't take away the feelings. But I did end up, and again, incredibly lucky. I ended up in a halfway house in Western Supermere. I guess they felt I wasn't ready to get back to London. And I was there for about three months with seven other women, sharing a bedroom, doing community work, Meals on Wheels, which I absolutely hated. I still can smell the smell of that disgusting food. Working in a restaurant, anything just to do something rather than having to feel. And that's when I think, I think that was probably the first time that I properly asked for help. You know, when I asked my father for the money to go to the treatment center, I thought, well, it'll just be a quick fix. I can go there quickly. I can withdraw from heroin. I can stop using heroin. I can start just smoking dope and doing other drugs and I'll be fine. And of course, after a couple of months of being in treatment, I realized that I had to give up all drugs and alcohol. And at that halfway house, I think the realization of having to live life on life's terms, clean and sober, was going to be too much for me. And I thought, I'm out of here. I'm going to go back to London and I'm going to go straight back to the dealer. Of course, I didn't even think about what would happen after that. It was just getting to that dealer, getting to the place where I didn't have to feel. But I knew I would die. I knew I didn't have another recovery in me. And I finally asked for help from the group. 
And I really broke down and I said, guys, help me get better. Help me live some kind of life where I can smile and I can enjoy without the daily obsession not to feel and having to take drugs and drink. And it worked. And I started going to a lot of meetings. This year, I'll be celebrating 41 years in recovery. So I'm now in my 40th year, which is something beyond my wildest imagination. And all I've really done is is go to AA and NA and not pick up a drug or a drink on a daily basis. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. I'm curious to know what is going whole turkey like on heroin? I mean, in those days, what did they do with you in the treatment center? Because presumably you can't just come off it straight away. No, I mean, they would give you Valium type drugs. I don't think it was Valium because withdrawal from Valium itself is also awful. And then you'd just have to do cold turkey, which was just sweating and shivering and shaking. And it was horrible. It was really, really horrible. Of course, it didn't last that long, but every day felt like a year. So it wasn't that much. You know, it was probably a few Nurofen and a few paracetamol and a little bit of methadone. In those days, you could withdraw from heroin with methadone, but again, very, very little. But those feelings of withdrawal are, it's, it's like having a really, really bad flu and all your muscles are aching and you get to that point where you really do anything just not to feel like that. It is horrendous. And, you know, the times during the last 40 years when I've thought, well, maybe I can have the old drug here or there or a line of heroin or smoke some dope or take some Valium. I just think back to that time in that treatment center withdrawing from all the drugs and I never want to have to go there again, ever. Mm. And so I think, you know, the fact that it was difficult and it was painful physically was probably not a bad thing because there have been times when that has helped me not pick up that drug or drink. What was also interesting to me is when you say that you had the career almost of your dreams and it was all in front of you, you're about to be taken off to Africa on this incredible opportunity and yet the drugs came first. And I think that's another thing that people who witness people with addictive behaviors can't fathom because it's like, well, if you have a sense of purpose and if you have this incredible opportunity, of course, that's going to make you better. Of course, when you find that thing that's bigger and better than the drugs, then you're going to come off them. And I think it's not quite as straightforward as that. I think there's got to be a shift of mindset that has to coincide with that purpose presenting itself. And I think that's something that you highlight that should be repeated to listeners. 
Absolutely. But, and that's why I also firmly believe that this is a illness. It's the disease, a disease of addiction. And going back to early childhood, you know, I, I do firmly believe today that, you know, probably 30%, and this is sort of the statistics that have sort of been proven. I don't know if they've been proven, but this is what everyone talks about in addiction charities is that it's usually around sort of 30% DNA and 30% your childhood and your upbringing and 30% just how you are in yourself, uh, your own individual thoughts and feelings. And certainly I cannot and would never blame my addiction on my family. Yes, my mother was an alcoholic, so there's definitely DNA in there. But it's just one of those things. You know, if you have the illness of addiction, whether it's with drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, then it does not matter what the job is, who the man is, what the circumstances. If one hasn't reach one's rock bottom and got into recovery and stop doing whatever that addictive behavior is, it's not going to work. You know, everything is always going to come second to the illness. And I think that's, for me, there's no question. When I got back into the film industry, clean and sober, I sought because I didn't have to use and drink. And if I did, then I would never have been successful ever. And it, for me, it's as simple as that. I'm curious as to whether the eating behaviours escalated after you put down the drugs or was that just no longer an issue? They seem to subside. No, that was still very much there. And that's something that has been there really throughout a lot of my recovery up until probably the last few years. And especially during COVID where I was able to take a really long, hard look at all my issues around food and do a few things that have really helped me, which was give up sugar and flour. And I've done that for the last few years and it's one of the best things I've done in recovery. So, you know, my weight and my food issues has gone up and down and up and down. And there's no question at various times in my recovery from drugs and alcohol, I've used food to try and take away those feelings. Never quite worked. And especially having weight issues and being an overeater. So physically, I would see all this weight sort of come on. And that, of course, didn't help with my self-worth and my recovery from drugs and alcohol. So absolutely, it was something Pandora that I had to take a very long, hard look at and have been to Overeaters Anonymous meetings and different eating fellowships and have done a lot of work in that area, including therapy. Yeah, and I think it's the primary underlying addiction can so often be food with a lot of females who have drug and, and alcohol issues. If you find something that works, like putting down sugar and flour, that's fantastic. And although for some people it's really, really tough at first, if you just can have the foresight to see where it leads you, if you pick up that sugar or that flowery thing and you're suddenly 10 slices into a cake and you feel that sense of self-loathing and that self-hatred, it's actually 
better long term just to abstain from it completely and to just make it a bottom line rule and to just know where it leads and just say no. Absolutely. And I think, you know, with with food, certainly from and I can only speak for myself, I think it's a very individual thing. As you say, with drugs and alcohol, it's actually a lot easier once you've hit that rock bottom and you're in recovery. You've probably done a couple of years in recovery, so you've got used to sort of feelings and used to life without drugs and alcohol. Food is much more difficult because you you have to eat and you have to eat at least three times a day and you're faced with a choice every time you pick something up to eat. Whereas with drugs and alcohol, you don't have to do them. Drugs are illegal, so that's easier in itself. And with alcohol, of course, you know, one can avoid it. I mean, for me, it's, I've probably, I've never been that comfortable in very smoky, smelly, smelly in the sense of the smell of the beer pubs. But I'm lucky in the sense that I don't mind being in a room with alcohol. And my husband drinks, he he loves his red wine. And that hasn't been a problem. And when it has, you know, if he drinks a bit too much, and, and I can really smell the red wine on him, or it's quite late at night, and I'm tired, we just go to separate bedrooms or separate parts of the house, you know, there's always something that one can do. So I've been very, very lucky that way. I haven't had to really give up that much in recovery. I probably wouldn't want to sit in a room and I wouldn't sit in a room where people were taking heroin and I wouldn't sit in a room where there was an awful lot of dope smoking because I don't particularly want to inhale it. But apart from that, it hasn't really affected my daily life, which is wonderful. Whereas obviously with food, it's a much more difficult thing to handle. Self-acceptance, you you know, we, we talk a lot about self-acceptance and I've had to really accept the fact that I am who I am. I feel the way I feel. I do what I do and I do need to, on a daily basis, put into place and have put into place an infrastructure that enhances the positive side of things. And I'm very lucky, I think, through AA and NA, I think I've managed to do that. It's still work in progress, but it's an extraordinary life I have today, Pandora. There's no question. I cannot compare it to the life I had before I put down the drugs and the drink. And I think slowly you realize in recovery that although it induces a huge amount of anxiety, actually, the more that the anxiety floods in, the more opportunities open. And your life becomes so much richer and wider for it. And hopefully that reinforces then the desire to keep on the right track. But until you start taking those risks, and they don't always work out for the better, they can go wrong and they can be messy, but you learn from that messiness and you learn that it doesn't last forever. But by and large, I do find that the universe has this wonderful way of throwing things in your path that just wouldn't have arisen had you stayed in the addiction. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely convinced that if I'd stayed in the addiction, I wouldn't be alive today. And there is absolutely no question I would not have be, become a mother. I would not have become a wife. I mean, I'm, I met my husband when I was 35. So I was 10 years into 
recovery. And I was incredibly happy with my work. I was back in the film and television industry. I started my own company. I was producing hundreds of music videos for bands like The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and David Bowie. And I was traveling around the world. I was making really good money. I had friends. I was going to meetings. I was having relationships. Not really. I never really found someone I really connected with, but I'd had good relationships. And I was lucky. I was very lucky, Pandora, because I was someone, and I think this has so much to do with recovery. You know, I had my work. I had my friends. I didn't need to be with someone just for the sake of feeling better about myself. I was quite happy not to have a partner until I met someone that I really, really wanted to be with. And that happened at the age of 35. And I met my husband. We were both skiing at the time. And I had on my Chelsea hat and he had on his Arsenal hat. We growled at each other. We'd been introduced by some friends. And by lunchtime, I was in love for the first time in my life. And I knew (laughs) I wanted this man to be the father of my children. And it was extraordinary. Things happen and we get through things. And, you know, the beginning of my recovery hadn't been like that. It hadn't been easy. And I'd done a lot of things that I'd done when I was using. You know, I I remember Mm. stealing from a till because I was so used to having to have money to get my drugs. I, I remember, you know, sleeping with my friend's boyfriend and all those sort of things that I'd sort of done when I was using. And I'd had to go through, as you were saying, I had to go through all those things and develop a conscience, which I did. And when I felt bad about my behavior, I took it to meetings and I talked about it and I got advice and I got identification and I got acceptance. And when I was ready, I put those behaviors down. And that was, you know, what happened when you know, when I met my husband, I was ready. You know, I'd Mm. done enough work on myself that allowed me just to be me and to let someone who ended up loving me unconditionally for who I am, whether fat or thin or bad-tempered or not, into my life. And that would never have happened if I had been taking drugs or drinking or in early recovery. I needed that time of going to meetings and doing therapy and getting to know what made me tick. And we're still together 28 years later and we love being together. We've got these wonderful boys who are now 25 and that was tough. You know, I had a miscarriage. I couldn't get pregnant. I was 40 I was terrified. I thought that I wouldn't get pregnant and the fertility wasn't working. And then finally, I did some IVF, which meant sticking needles into me. And I hadn't done that since I was using drugs. And that was, again, terrifying. But I took those feelings to my AA and NA meetings and to my therapist and to my friends. And I got help and I got through it and I got pregnant with these boys And again, that was difficult. They were born very prematurely and it was all heavy anxiety and feelings. But I just kept coming to my meetings and talking to my friends. And But it's been a journey. It's been a journey being a mother. But it's the best thing that I've ever done. You know, I even not gave up. That's probably the wrong word. But 
I sort of semi-retired from a, you know, what was a very successful film career. I won Oscars and BAFTAs and, but you know, the boys were growing up. They were probably 12, 13 at the time and they needed a mum around. And again, with the help of the 12-step fellowship and, and getting older, I was able to, okay, my priority now is going to be my, my boys. And I found other things to do, like co-found the London Screen Academy and immersed myself in different charities. And, you know, my life has just got fuller and fuller and happier and happier. And I'd like to close, Lisa, by asking you about what advice you would give to someone who's struggling with a drug addiction at the moment. I think the first thing is never, ever, ever give up. Just try and talk about how you're feeling, talk about your addiction, get help. We all need help. There's still so much stigma around addiction. Try to bypass that stigma. And remember, we only have one life and it's so short and it's so precious. And by actually going out and asking for help, you're not just helping yourself you're helping that person that you've asked help from because it's giving them so much self-worth that you've picked up that phone and said, help. There's so many ways now to get better, whether it's through the 12-step fellowship, whether it's through one's doctor, one's friends. The biggest piece of advice I could give is you're not alone. We're not alone. Get on the blower, get on the phone, go out and meet someone and just ask for help. Well, that's invaluable advice. And Lisa, you're just such an inspiration. And it's just been the most enlightening, inspiring conversation. And I just at times you sort of wanted to I wanted to cry. It's just been, God, if I can follow your trajectory, I'll be a very happy bunny. But thank you so much for sharing it and in such detail and for being so honest. It will help so many people. And um, I really hope that I will meet you in person very soon. I would love to, Pandora. And, you know, it's still work in progress. You know, I have my good days and I have my bad days. But I keep very close to the fellowship and to my friends and family. And I just don't pick up that drug or drink a day at a time. And the rest just happens. It is. It's one day at a time, isn't it? It really is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.